The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turning your Bibles to Revelation 21, which we're studying this morning, as you heard Chase read, verses 22 through 27. I think my kids uh, are going to laugh when I confess this to you. I can't stand computer upgrades. I, I, I just can't stand them. I checked my app store and there's this little number 52 next to it. Some of you will know exactly what that's about. They're upgrades for apps that enable my smartphone to do clever, interesting things that I find beneficial. But those software people think I need them continually, all the time. I need them because they're thinking about me so generously all the time. And they want to upgrade the app. And uh, Microsoft is thinking about me all the time too, continually. And uh, they, they've come up with new ways that my operating system can improve. And they're going to hijack my computer for a while and make the computer better. But it's been my experience that not all of the upgrades are an improvement. I don't know if you found that. I don't know if you're so excited about upgrades that you think upgrades are always an improvement. But I've not found it to be the case. But as we come to Revelation 21 and 22, and as we study the new world that's coming, that is an upgrade, if we can use that low word, that is going to be infinitely, perfectly satisfying to us. We will in no way be disappointed. It says in Romans chapter 8, hope does not disappoint. So the thing actually we're going to find is that what we have hoped for is so vastly small compared to the reality we're going to inherit that we will be actually overwhelmed by the beauty, the majesty of the place. And honestly, I think the more we have a sense of that now, the more energetically and courageously and fruitfully we're going to live. The more heavenly-minded we are now, the better. The more we're going to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit, the bolder we're going to be in evangelism and missions. In every way it's going to be better. We have a sense of this in Philippians chapter 1 where the apostle Paul was incarcerated in prison for the gospel and he was facing the possibility of his own execution for Christ. And he was weighing out his preferences to uh, the two options of on the one hand continuing to live and serve Christ and to serve Christ's people and on the other hand to, to die, to be executed, to depart and be with Christ. And he said as he evaluated, he was actually torn between the two, which is remarkable how much he wanted to wait to go to heaven so that he could benefit his brothers and sisters in Christ and benefit lost people by preaching the gospel. It's incredible. A very Christ-like attitude, how Jesus left heaven to come to earth and, and save us. And how Paul had imbued that. And it's like, I want to stay here on earth as long as I can. But to depart and be with Christ, he said, is better by far. Better by far. So that's an upgrade we are not going to be disappointed in. 
It's going to be better by far. And that's a heavenly world that was, in some sense, mysterious sense, incomplete. The world we're reading about here in Revelation 21 and 22 is better by far than what we would depart and go to today. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem are better by far than the present reality of where the saints are now, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's better by far than this. But we are going to be so deeply, richly, fully satisfied with heaven. And I want you to know that. And I I want to just walk through these verses in Revelation 21. And we'll continue, God willing, next week on into Revelation 22 to try to understand heaven. To try to understand the new heaven and new earth. And try to understand the new Jerusalem. Now, Revelation, the first half of Revelation 21 is described first, the new heaven and new earth generally in broad terms. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain in that new universe. But then it zeroes in on the new Jerusalem, the capital city of that new empire of God. And last week we saw that it's just described in in kind of architectural terms. The heavenly architecture and layout of of the city, the new Jerusalem, gives it its gates and foundations and dimensions and building materials. We saw that last time, heavenly architecture. But now in this rest of Revelation 21, it describes the the new Jerusalem in mostly negative terms. What will not be there? There's a lot of negated words of things that will not be there. There'll be no temple in the city. There's no sun, no moon. It seems no lamp. And no exclusions from the kings of the earth. No shutting of the gates at night. For indeed, there will be no night, and there will be no wicked persons there, and nothing impure at all. So generally negative terms, things that are filtered out or that will be changed in the world. So let's just walk through them. You see the outline in the bulletin? But we begin with, as Topher zeroed in and talked about, I thought Topher was going to go ahead and preach the sermon. I would have been excited to hear it. There's no way to steal my thunder. It's not mine. It's God's thunder. It's God's lightning. And so, brother, as much as you wanted to do, I was ready to go. But we begin with the observation in verse 22. Revelation 21, 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so this first outline uh, point is earthly temple will be fulfilled, fulfilled in heavenly worship. So here, the history of the tabernacle and the temple reaches its final destination. So what God intended in the tabernacle, what he intended intended in in the temple, will reach its fulfillment here. Now, the idea of a tabernacle then becoming the temple was the idea of an earthly dwelling place where God would dwell in the midst of his people. And he'd put his name there, and that would be the place to which people would go to meet with God. And this is a bit of a mystery if you think about it because our God is omnipresent. Meaning in some sense he's no more in one place than he is in in another. But amazingly God has chosen in this present age to reveal himself more in some places than he has in others. So for example when Jacob was fleeing for his life from Esau He came to a certain place, and in Genesis uh, 28, 
he laid down and had a dream in which he saw a vision of a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending. An awesome dream. And when he awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate, the gateway of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. So he looked on that as a holy place. You see the same thing, of course, in the, in the call of Moses in the burning bush where God said, do not come any closer. And then told him to take off his shoes for the ground on which he was standing was holy ground. So you have that idea of a holy place at Bethel, an awesome place, the gateway to heaven. And then the burning bush was holy ground. So in the old covenant, God chose to reveal himself more in one place than in others. And I quoted this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to read it again. Jonathan Edwards, in his marvelous sermon on heaven, Heaven is a World of Love, said this, Heaven is the palace or presence chamber of the High and Holy One. Of course, God is everywhere. He fills both heaven and earth. But yet he is said in some respects to be more especially in some places than in others. He was set of old to dwell in the land of Israel above all other lands. And in Jerusalem above all other cities in that land. And in the temple above all other buildings in that city. And in the Holy of Holies above all other apartments of the temple. And on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant above all other places within the Holy of Holies. But heaven is his dwelling place above all other places in the universe. And all those places in which he, he was said to dwell of old were but types and shadows of this. Heaven is a part of creation that God has built for this end. To be the place of his glorious presence and it is his abode forever. So God ordained in Exodus a tabernacle, a tent, where he would meet with the people was movable because the nation was out in the desert at that time moving around. And you have the description of the tabernacle, its building materials, how it was to be built, its dimensions, all that laid out very clearly for us in Exodus 25 through 40. And then when everything was built according to those descriptions, which Moses had based on a vision he had from God on the mountain, God gave him a, a heavenly vision. And so the tabernacle was a representation of that heavenly vision. When it was built, then a glory cloud from God descended and filled the tabernacle. And this whole thing was symbolic of God's desire to dwell together with his people. He wanted to be with his people so that they would be where he was and see his glory. The tabernacle was only a type or a shadow as the author of Hebrews makes it very plain for us in Hebrews chapter 8 the Levitical priest served in, as a, uh, in a sanctuary that is just a copy and a shadow of what was in heaven. Now there the Levitical priest poured out the blood of animal sacrifices, showing that it was only by the blood, the atoning blood of the sacrifice, that God would even meet with sinful people like us. 
But when the tabernacle was still standing, the author of Hebrews tells us, he was saying that the way into the true most holy place was not yet disclosed. Because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was just a type and a shadow, that whole thing. Now, in the course of time in the Old Testament, David, having been settled as king over Israel, was in a beautiful, aromatic palace of cedar, and he began to be jealous for the glory of God and says, here I am in a, in a palace, in a building, a structure, but God is in a tent. Nathan the prophet told him, do whatever is on your heart. But then God, a few moments later, had a different message for Nathan to give to David. Are you the one to build a house for me? I'm going to build a house for you. And when your days are over, I'm going to raise up a son from your own body and he will build a house for my name. And I will establish his kingdom forever. It's an incredible prediction. 2 Samuel 7. So, in the course of time, David's own son, biological son Solomon, did build a temple, a physical structure. And they dedicated that temple in 1 Kings 8. And when the priests withdrew from that, again, the glory cloud came and filled the temple so the priest couldn't even go in the place. Now Solomon said to some degree he was certain that God would, he had built built that temple that God would dwell there forever. 1 Kings 8, 12 and 13, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. But Solomon did not really understand the future. He did not understand what would happen. The real temple would be built by David's greater son, The son of David, Jesus, would build the eternal tabernacle, or you could say temple. Solomon did realize the insufficiency of that that wood and gold box that he had made called the temple. He said, but will God really dwell on earth? Heaven, even the highest heavens can't contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? Now, in the course of time, the Jews desecrated the temple by their wickedness and by their sins by their perversions, their idolatries, so that God took the prophet Ezekiel on a secret spirit journey through the the guts and the basement of the temple, and there the elders of Israel were, were worshiping crawling things and defiled things and bowing down to idols. And because of the wickedness of the Jewish people led by their leaders... The glory of God, the glory cloud, departed from the temple. And very soon after that, the Babylonians came and destroyed the place. Completely destroyed it. Because of the wickedness and the sin. Now, in the course of time, the the Jews returned from exile to Babylon. And under the prophet Ezra and Haggai, there was a rebuilding of, of a smaller, less glorious temple. And the animal sacrificial system was was reestablished and ran until the time of Jesus. Now, Jesus, as he began his public ministry, cleansed the temple. And then as he ended his public ministry, he cleansed it again. So in John chapter 2, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he made a whip and drove out all of, the, all of the, the, those that were buying and selling and money changers, and they're just trying to make money very wickedly on the temple. He drove them out. And his enemies approached him and 
tried to stop him saying, what sign can you show us that gives you your right to do all these things? Jesus said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They didn't understand him. They said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So there he decisively redefined the temple. He also said to the Samaritan woman who came to him and Jesus began having a spiritual discussion with her and brought up her sin concerning the, her husband and the man that was waiting home for her and all that. So she changed the subject. If you ever get into witnessing situations, you may find how often people do that kind of thing. Why? Uh, right, since you're talking about my sin, let's talk about the proper place of worship. That's like a smoke screen, but I, amazingly, she went exactly where Jesus wanted to go. It's amazing. Now, the Samaritans at that time believed that the proper place of worship was Mount Gerizim in Samaria. The Jews argued, said, no, it's in Mount Jerusalem, Mount Zion. That's where it is. Jesus soared far above both of them. And he told it to this Samaritan woman first. Amazing. Woman, believe me, the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father Worshippers, the Father seeks. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is saying the time is coming. There won't even be a place. You'll be able to worship God anywhere and everywhere by the Spirit. Furthermore, Jesus predicted clearly the destruction of the last, up to that point, redemptive history, and up to our point as well, the last temple of the Jews. In Matthew 24, you see all these stones? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And then when he's on the cross, as I began in my pastoral prayer, he's on the cross and he's shedding his atoning blood, thus ending forever and making obsolete forever the animal sacrificial system. And ended forever the need for a Levitical priesthood, the need for a tabernacle or a temple. It's been fulfilled. That's the best word. As he cried out and breathed his last, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, showing that there was now a way for us. We are no longer excluded, but actually invited to come into the very presence of God by the atoning blood of Jesus. As the author of the Hebrews said, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Now, in the course of time, the Romans confirmed this in A.D. 70 by destroying the, the building in direct fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. And the Jews have not had a physical temple since. Paul, in writing in his ministry among the Gentiles, saw very clearly that not only was Jesus' own body the temple... But the church had become the body of Christ. And he uses an architectural image of the church in Ephesians chapter 2. As the gospel is spreading 
Not just to Jews, but now Gentiles too. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. And people are coming in and, and he sees this vision of a, of a holy temple. And he says, he talks about God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy uh, temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are becoming, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so Peter adds to that image saying that we are living stones built into a spiritual house to offer sacrifices to God. Now, for 20 centuries, this spiritual temple has been rising. For 20 centuries, living stones have been, have been rescued out of Satan's dark kingdom and, and put in the walls, so to speak, as this thing rises and becomes more beautiful and diverse and glorious and magnificent. As people from every tribe and language, people and nation... All the peoples are being saved, elect from every nation, brought into this marvelous structure. It's just, if you could just close your eyes and see it, it's a glorious building project. It's not finished yet, but it's getting close. All right, so that's backdrop. I'm, a, I'm worried about this sermon, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so why then is there no temple in heaven? Look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, the reason's clear. God's atoning work through Jesus is fulfilled. We are perfectly cleansed of all of our sins. So there's no need for any more sacrifices. And furthermore, God will be so immediately present everywhere you look that you don't need a special place. Every place will be special. Every place will be an encounter with the radiant glory of God. It will be impossible to look any direction, north, south, east, or west, and not see the glory of God. And have an immediate experience with the glory of God. So there's no need for a special place where we would assemble together. It's the fulfillment of the vision Jesus gave to the Samaritan woman. Not a place, but together, intimately connected with God by the Spirit. Now John speaks of the Lord God Almighty, God the Father. Literally the God who rules over everything. God is the temple. And so is Jesus the Lamb. Again, clear indication of the deity of Christ. God and the Lamb are the temple. And the city will be the Holy of Holies. Perfect cube. Solomon's perfect cube was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. 1 Kings 6.20. The New Jerusalem is 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. Really big. Talked about that last time. I'm not going there again. Big, big, big holy of holies. And everywhere you are in the city, it's perfectly holy, and you'll have an encounter with the living God. Secondly, we see earthly light fulfilled in heavenly glory. Look at verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So here we address the light of the new Jerusalem. When God created the heavens and the earth, the first thing he said after that statement was God said, let there be light, and there was light. The sun and the moon and the stars were not required at that point on the first and the second and the third day of creation. They didn't exist. I've said before, God does light very well. He didn't need the sun, didn't need the moon, didn't need the stars. He delegated the job to them on the fourth day. 
Now he's taking the job back. The awesome son will be obsolete, it seems. It will be fulfilled. This incredible burning ball of nuclear reaction, 93 million miles from us, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface, 27 million degrees Fahrenheit at the center. How the scientists know that, I will never know. There is no probe that's gone to the center of the sun to tell us, but it's hot. And this light has given us the light of day throughout creation. But now God is going to take the job back. And so also the moon will be gone. The softer gleam of the moon, that pale reflected light. There are aspects of the description in Revelation 21 that some people regret, like there'll be no sea and there'll be no moon. I mean, you can picture beautiful moonlit nights. Like I remember one night I went with a friend of mine from college and we we got some motor scooters and we went out a full moon on Nantucket Island. Never forget that. And we went to the, the seashore and so there's the moon and the sea, two things that we won't have in heaven. And it was spectacularly beautiful. The shimmering light of the moon on the pretty quiet sea that night. It's beautiful. And you've had similar things like that. But I remember another time, about a year ago, uh, every year I, I ride up to Lake Gaston on my bicycle, 72 miles. And uh, a year and a half ago, I got a really late start. This is where your pastor almost lost his mind. I could have done simple mathematics. It was in October, and I started around about 3 o'clock. It's about a four and a half hour bike ride. Okay, figure it out. Sun's going to set in there somewhere. And as I'm riding, I have no lights on my bike. I have no reflection on my, I'm just riding. And I'm up there in northern uh, North Carolina or southern Virginia, something like that. And, you know, it was just getting, the shadows were getting long. And it was getting darker and darker. And it was like, huh, like I'd never seen a sunset before. And then suddenly it was dark. And I mean dark. Because there was no moon that night. And there were no stars. It was just a dark night. It was one of the scariest nights of my life. And I had to dismount my bike and walk it for long distances. There were lots of barking dogs up there and probably some Remingtons and some other things to protect the property from people like me that are walking out at night when they shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, am I going to survive this night? And here's the thing. Night itself isn't beautiful. Light at night is beautiful. The pure darkness, I couldn't see the left side of the, of the road or the right side. It was scary. It was inky black darkness. And there's nothing beautiful about that. And honestly, in the Bible, frequently, we have the, the, uh, the images of the, of the light. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But there, it seems that God is going to fulfill that. God's going to take over that job. Isaiah 24, 23, it says, The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord God Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Before its elders, gloriously. So why would the moon be ashamed? Why would the sun be ashamed? Because they can't do anything compared to God's glory. And it's like, you know, bringing a little flashlight to a, uh, you know, a spotlight party or something like that. And it's like, you know, you want to hide the little thing you brought. And the sun and the moon will be like that. They'll be ashamed compared to the glory of God. Again, as it says in Isaiah 60, 19, the sun will no longer be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Thirdly, earthly exclusions will be fulfilled in heavenly openness. Look at verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. 
So this is speaking about the exclusions, people kept outside the city. Look ahead in chapter 22, verse 15. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and, and practices falsehood. So these are all the wicked, the sinners. God's going to weed all of them out. He's going to weed out all the dangers. And he's going to weed out all the dangers, uh, the night in which the dangers prowl. God called the day good. He didn't say anything about the night. And so there, though there is a beauty to a, a star-spangled night sky and a, and a softer gleam of the moon, there isn't any beauty in pure darkness. And so darkness is frequently used as a metaphor for evil. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Or John 3.19, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Jesus said in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This especially happened the night that Jesus was arrested. Do you remember how he predicted that one of them would betray him? And it was the one who took the bread that Jesus dipped took it out of his hand. And you remember in John's gospel, Jesus dipped the bread and handed the bread to Judas. And Judas took it. And when he took it, Satan entered into him. And it says in John 13, verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. I mean, that's not an accident in John's gospel. It says in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, Jesus said to his arresters and his persecutors, this is your hour when darkness reigns. So that darkness is an image of rebellion against God. Well, in the new universe, there'll be no darkness at all. There'll be a universal light of the glory of God. You know what I thought? Go with me on this one. There'll be no shadows at all in the New Jerusalem. I mean, think about a stage that has really brilliant spotlights in every direction. There's just no shadows anywhere. So work on that. I don't know what that's going to do for you or how it's going to help you, but I think there'll be no shadows, no darkness at all. Furthermore, it says the gates will never be shut. In the ancient world, gates were shut to keep the, the dangers on the outside, keep the, the wild beasts on the outside, keep the, uh, the marauding, invading armies on the outside. Well, all of the wicked people, all the rebellious people, and all the demons and Satan will be in the lake of fire. So the gates will stand open all the time. And it says, earthly sacrifices will be fulfilled in heavenly diversity. Look at verses 24 through 26. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, or their glory into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So this is the light of the new world. This is the light of the new Jerusalem, the light of the new heaven, the light of the new earth. A pervasive, brilliant, beautiful light of the glory of God. And it says the nations and the kings of the earth will walk by that light. So simply put, the light by which we will operate and do our things will be the light of the glory of God. That's the light we'll see. Not the sun, the moon, the stars or the, uh, the lamp. No need. But more than that, I think, it means that we will walk by the principles that flow from the character of God. In us will be perfectly fulfilled the moral law of God. We will walk by God's character. We'll walk by His nature. That will be our rule. 
the way by which we will live our lives. In Isaiah chapter 2, in verses 2 through 5, it says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. So many peoples, that's nations, will say that. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now listen to the final statement. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, many commentators say that's talking about the millennium. I understand that. I'm not getting into all that. I'm just saying that's, all of that's going to be perfectly fulfilled in heaven. The law will flow from the heart of God, and we will resonate and glow with it and walk by that light. But who are these nations? And who are these kings of the earth? Fascinating question. Many speculations. Some of them connected with the millennial reign. Some of them connected with all kinds of interesting things. Let's just keep it simple. They are, together with the Jews, all of the redeemed from planet Earth. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 7. That's who they are. And they're recognized, I believe, in heaven by their ethnic diversity, by their different culture, by what I call their amoral diversity. They'll be identified as trophies of God's grace from every tribe and language and people and nation. I have worshipped with African brothers and sisters in Nairobi. They were primarily from the Kikuyu tribe, I believe. And they love rhythmic worship, lots of drums. They love to clap and sway and sing. And I will never forget the first time I heard that worship. It was beautiful. But they're mostly modernized in their dress or their attire. But their culture is very clear. On that same mission trip, I had the chance to go worship with some Maasai tribes people out in the Rift Valley... They are herdsmen. They are very tall, graceful. They put red ochre in their hair and on their face. They wear a lot of beads and jewelry. The Maasai were some of the most violent, violently opposed to British rule when the British ruled that colony. They were some of the last to be, to some degree, pacified. The Maasai tribes people we worship with were Christians. They'd been kicked out of their tribe, ostracized by their other Maasai. They have that culture, and what an unforgettable time of worship under that tree, sitting on uh, rudimentary wooden benches. I've also worshipped in a Lutheran cathedral in Dresden with Calvin a couple summers ago, and we listened to Baroque music uh, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach, and uh, the German people just worship in a different style than the Kikuyu people do, um, different, different displays, but... Those that are, are born again and love the Lord, worshiping the same triune God, celebrating the same redemption. I worshiped in a cell church in Shanghai in China, up in a, a high rise there, and they used a boom box with a CD to play uh, Western praise and worship songs. And they were there, uh, they spent a lot of time in prayer. I'll never forget that, about being in Shanghai with the believers there. I've worshiped with Indian believers in Pune near Mumbai. I was there during the Hindu festival of Diwali, the festival of lights, and these folks had broken off from their false religion of Hinduism and had come to faith in Christ, and there were literally thousands of of them there listening to me unfold the book of Philippians and and just thronged me afterwards to say they'd been hungry and thirsty for the word of God. 
These are Indian believers with their culture as well. Japanese Christians. I'll never forget a sunrise, Easter sunrise service. Looking at the Pacific Ocean with Japanese Christians. And we were all convinced that we were the first Christians on planet Earth that year to celebrate Easter. I think we won. You know, the land of the rising sun. Y'all would have had to get up at about 1 o'clock or something. I don't know when. But it was just sweet to be with those Japanese Christians in Tokushima. I believe all of those diverse cultures and all of that we're going to see in some marvelous way. And their bringing of their riches and their treasures into the new Jerusalem, we can at least simply say, is that they themselves are converted and they bring their uniqueness in to worship Jesus. And I'll totally buy that, but I'm going to go actually beyond that. I'm going to say that we are going to be in resurrected bodies with resurrected minds, resurrected hands and feet, and we are going to have almost, we're going to have limitless strength and energy, and we'll be in this whole new earth. I'm thinking, don't you think there's going to be work for us to do? Things for us to work on, projects to make, and the curse will be gone. There'll be no curse on work. So do not think that work is the curse. Work was cursed Our efforts crumble and they don't work out and thorns and thistles come after plowing and watering and planting and waiting and you get thorns and thistles. That's the curse. In heaven, imagine working and having it come to full fruition and having limitless time to work on the project. Still in in progress. And then as things are finished, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem and show Jesus what they made by their creativity and by their strength. And why would they be kings of the earth? I believe there will be different, smaller kingdoms in the new heaven, the new earth. I believe Jesus will be a king of kings and a lord of lords. I think this is clearly taught in scripture in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. It says, then the sovereignty and power and greatness of the kingdoms, plural, under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. The people of the Most High and His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will worship and obey Him. There's a lot in that one verse. Very provocative. Remember the parable in Luke 19 of the ten minas? Minas is an amount of money like a talent. And the guy who gains and gets to the ten minas, he's given ten cities to manage. Very interesting. I'm not going to speculate much more, but there's going to be kings of the earth and they will stream into the capital city of New Jerusalem and they will honor and worship Jesus, the true king of kings. Finally, earthly impurity removed for heavenly purity. Verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. New Jerusalem will be perfectly pure. There'll be nothing impure there. Modern cities are patterned after wicked Babylon, depicted in Revelation 17, the great whore of Babylon, drunk on a cup of immorality, drunk on the blood of the saints. And mercantile and and prosperous and idolatrous. In Revelation 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And so all the cities of this present evil age are patterned after that to some degree. Imagine landing by plane at night, JFK, you're going down and you can see New York City at night, and I've seen this, done this many times. 
And you look down, it's really quite beautiful, really, quite spectacular. And as you're coming down, you can see Manhattan all lit up at night. You can see the Brooklyn Bridge lit up. You can see the Statue of Liberty lit up. As you get closer, you can see the, the traffic, which you're going to experience in just a few minutes once you land and try to get out of the airport. But you can see the traffic. You can see like the, the taillights like, like rubies and jewels and, and the headlights like diamonds. And it's really quite beautiful. But you know, once you get on foot in the city, you know you need to be careful at night. You need to be careful all the time, but you need to be careful especially at night. That wicked forces are prowling and at work, and they will trade your life in for their next fix easily. And you know it, and so you need to be careful. Well, all of that's gone. There'll be no impurity. And the best part of all, your impurity will be gone. You, your heart will be purified. You will be glorified. You will love, perfectly love righteousness and perfectly hate wickedness forever. And you will have your robe washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you'll have the right to enter the city and eat from the tree of life. Perfectly pure. Only those, it says, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world will be allowed to enter there. That's election. That's predestination. Every single one of those that was named by name before the foundation of the world will most certainly be in there. And they ratified it. They confirmed it in space and time when they heard the gospel, the gospel of their salvation. And having believed, they were marked in him with a seal. And so they crossed over from death to life, but their names were known before they did it. Before the foundation of the world, they were called and summoned in time and became Christians. And they will enter. So, what application can we take from this as we close? First and foremost, as you've already heard, hear and believe the gospel now. If, you, if you're on the outside of all this looking in, I just would ask that the fear of the Lord would be the beginning of wisdom for you. That you realize you don't know how much longer you have in this body. You don't know how much longer you're going to be alive. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I'm begging you as though God himself were making his appeal through me. Be reconciled to God. Acknowledge that you have sinned, that you have violated God's laws. Acknowledge it. Be honest about it. And ask him for the forgiveness that Jesus provided by shedding his blood on the cross. One atoning sacrifice for all time. All you have to do is trust in him. Not by works, but by faith. Trust in him. And you will be welcomed into the new Jerusalem when the time comes. And, and for the rest of us who have done that some time ago. Recognize your responsibility to take a version of what I just said. And just go say it to some lost person this week. We have a responsibility to reap now into the new Jerusalem. We have a responsibility to share the gospel. We're surrounded by people who are without hope and without God in the world. We have an evangelistic responsibility. Let's be faithful to it this week. Do something bold for Jesus. Invite someone to church, even though it's not Easter. You can do that, you know. Invite people to church. And we're going to be celebrating the resurrection and salvation. And understand the future of worship in Jerusalem. We're all going to be bowing down and worshiping. The more you can do that now, the better. Can I just urge you to spend more time personally in worship this week? Just more time finding some sweet psalm or a hymn you like and just sing it to God. Sing it to Jesus because you love him. Finally, look forward to heavenly work and do your work as to the Lord this week. All right? Yes, the work is cursed now. But it's a foretaste of the work we're going to do in heaven. Work with all your heart as working for the Lord. Do the projects God gives you to do so that people 
sit up and take notice and say, why do you have such an energy and a zeal for doing this? Like, I'm just working as unto the Lord because someday I'm going to be in this new world and the works I'm going to do won't be cursed then and I want to do them as much as possible now for the glory of God, but I'm looking forward to that future day. And then off you go. Evangelize. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study today. Thank you for the good things that we have learned. Thank you for the joy and the delight that is waiting for us, that the upgrade, if we can even just lower it with that that word, is going to be so infinitely satisfying to us. Oh, God, give us hope. Fill us with hope. And help, help that hope to just energize us to do the good works. And I pray for any that are lost, that walked in here lost, that they would hear Jesus calling to them, crying to them, saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Trust in me, and I'll forgive you of all your sins. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.